0: I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. If you love the podcast, you can support it at any level by visiting glow.fm slash Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Robert Desiderio. Robert played Jack Mazzarone on the show. Today, Robert's a writer and actually just released a new book. We talked about a little of everything. Sopranos, writing, a pilot he shot with David Chase back in the day, relationships, who's the boss, tennis, podcasts. Great, sweet guy, had a lot of fun. That's all I got. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, listeners. Here's Robert Desiderio. Robert, thanks for being a part of this. You're welcome. So, you grew up in the Bronx. Yep. What was your experience growing up there like? I hear a lot of people say, I grew up in the Bronx. What does that statement mean to you?
1: Well, there are three Bronxes. There was a South Bronx, which was the home of hip hop back in the 80s, where I was formative, in my formative years. Uh, There was the uh, North Bronx where I grew up, and my father made sure that I told people I was from the North Bronx, which was sort of lower middle class. And then there was the hoity-toity area called Riverdale. So the Bronx had a lot of, uh, it was a schizophrenic experience, so to speak. But I grew up in a normal environments. We had a schoolyard across the street. I went to grammar school there. We played softball on the weekends. We played stickball in the street. We biked around, you know, generally in the, I was born in 51. So 50s, 60s, 70s, it was safe. I did get uh, a shot in the back. This crazy guy, Russell, was I think the only guy on the street that was weird that way, for some reason, he had a hard-on for me. And fortunately, it was in the wintertime. He had a BB gun. And he said, you better run. So I ran down the street, and he shot me in the back. There was a little welt, but that was the, the only violence I had encountered growing up. And I was probably, I don't know, 15 years old back then. Um, when I went to college, I basically moved away and only visited the folks on occasion. I moved to New Jersey and went to Seton Hall University out in New Jersey.
0: Tony Soprano had a semester and a half.
1: I know. I saw that. I heard that. Yeah.
0: How did acting get on your radar?
1: Um... Family? No. Uh, well, actually, not particularly, but my father, uh, he always wanted to be an actor. His one claim to fame... His name was Anthony, because he passed away. He was 101 when he passed away four years ago. Uh, his claim to fame in terms of the theatrical experience was he was an extra on Broadway in a play that Natasha Rambova was one of the stars. She was married to Rudolf Valentino at the time, and he had the line, you know, waving the daily paper, extra, extra, and he was kind of bitten by the bug as the story goes and wanted to move out west, but, my grandfather, who owned a farm in the Bronx, and they had farms back then, and my father was born in nineteen ten and uh he uh discouraged my father from doing anything but helping him on the farm. My father did play the trombone and he played uh Fourth of July. he was in an orchestra and he would play you know at the band shell in new, new Rochelle. and uh so and he painted on weekends, so he got his artistic Creativity out in those ways, but he was a lab, uh, laborer. He was a bricklayer for the Parks Department in Manhattan. Um, so, I, and no one else in my family was in show business. I uh I, I don't know where it came from. Actually,
0: did it come at Seton Hall?
1: It came. Uh, it came at Seton Hall um in grammar school. You know, as a kid, I you know I did plays in the backyard when I was like eight or nine years old. But that never really took anywhere or went anywhere. Uh, high school, I was on the debate team. I was the president of the debate team, but didn't act at all in high school. In college, um, I was, I still am somewhat. I was basically a, um, a shy guy and... A
0: lot of actors are.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not, there are some who are really shy. I wasn't that extreme, but I never could hang out at bars and stuff and, you know, a, a place to meet women for a straight guy. Um, In the college circumstance, the theater was pretty great. I mean, I noticed a couple of people you've had on the show. I mean, the pretty women were in the theater. So that's what uh, drew me to the theater there at Seton Hall. And that's when my acting started. I was in at least one or two plays every season while I was there. Yeah, so that's where it, I kind of, it locked in. that This is, I like this on more levels than just meeting girls
0: what is considered (laughs) what is considered your acting break if you will
1: Uh, i done um a lot of soap opera guest stars i uh i sort of the 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 primal first big break was i went in to read for a guest spot two-week job i believe on one life to live um and uh wound up having a storyline with a woman who is my wife and has been for 35 years, Judith Light. And there was something going on between us. It was like a huge connection from day one. And that energy kind of permeated the scenes we were in. She was a hooker. I was a gangster, um, pimp kind of guy. And they saw that happening so they started to write for us and what started out as a couple of week gig turned into ultimately about a year and a half on and off so that was the first big break the second one the california version was i got cast in a movie of the week with valerie bertinelli called princess in the cabbie she was the princess i was a new york cab driver took place in san francisco um I'll never forget, uh, Glenn Jordan was a director. I gave him a hard time, and he really put me in my place. But he said, you look like John Garfield. And it was like, wow, oh, okay, i am take this even more serious now. Uh, so that was sort of the second big break. Um, a couple of movies, no, actually the next thing that came after that was something written by David Chase. It was a pilot for a TV series.
0: Rockford Files?
1: No, no, it's called Moonlight. Okay. Um... It didn't go anywhere past the pilot, but that's where my first connection with David happened. I I didn't really know him in the Soprano days because I came in and out. I had a few episodes and I I saw him. I was able to hand him a photograph from the time that we did Moonlight to kind of, you know, uh, reignite that connection. But I didn't really have much of a connection to David when I was doing the Sopranos. Uh, But he was, you know, he wrote and produced Moonlight. Um, What was it about? It was about a a New York kid who delivers Chinese food and is in a rock band on the side.
0: Again, the music connection. Yeah,
1: oh, totally. David was, um, yeah, he's been in music forever. And um, it opens up with me delivering the food to a brownstone in Manhattan. Unbeknownst to me, in the brownstone was a terrorist who recently had facial surgery, So no one knew what he looked like. And the FBI had been surveilling him. And I'm this innocent guy just knocking on the door delivering food. When the guy opens up the door, the FBI sort of just kind of barges in. But the guy escapes. And I'm the only guy who has seen him with his new face. So the FBI cultivates this kind of, you know, this Italian kid, Lenny Barbella, you know, and they put him through the ringer and give him a uniform and try and have him reconnect with that guy and help them find him. How I don't know what else happened. I don't know what happened with that. Although Michelle Phillips was my girlfriend in that, mamas and papas Michelle. And uh, the pilot ended with me basically saying to the head of the FBI, uh, what else you got? And it never went anywhere. Jackie Cooper from years ago, directed it and he and david and a couple of producers had some energy going on between them. he left rod holcomb who wound up ultimately directing the pilot for er took over so i had a nice connection with rod i had a nice connection with jackie too and it was sad when he left um so i mean that was basically that story
0: were you the lead?
1: I was the lead. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was, was the guy. A great
0: premise. The way you described. Yeah. It. Yeah.
1: No, David. It was a great. It was a great show. This. You know. This. This kid was really out of water. I mean, he just wanted to be in a rock band. Then he's delivering Chinese food to make money. He's living with his folks, and he gets put into this environment where he's got to like really, you know, kind of step up in a way that. I uh, Heidi didn't know how. So he's kind of fumbles through it. It was, it was a great premise. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah.
0: And I'm seeing all this connective tissue to the Sopranos because you mentioned delivering Chinese food. And we of course know how Tony Soprano feels about orange peel beef. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great.
1: So those are my sort of, you know, like one, two, three kind of okay. breaks. And I came out here to do both Prince's in the Cabby* and Moonlight and would go back and, um, uh, continue my work on the soap opera, you know, in in soaps, they, if an actor leaves and they like him, they'll get somebody else to play the same character until that guy comes back or a woman comes back. When I came back after Moonlight, um, yeah, after Moonlight, where I stayed at the Chateau Marmont right across the street from here. And they said, where do you want to stay? And all I knew was the Chateau Marmont. (laughs) And when they said, okay, that was like, wow, I've made it. I went back to the soap opera and said to Judith, who'd been on the soap for five years at that point, two Emmys. She's won; she won two Emmys at that point. And I said, uh, "You got to leave the show and come out to California because you know, basically, there's gold in them their hills. And you know, the rest is you know a lot of what I think you want to address at some point." <laughs> yeah, no, for sure.
0: Well, we can we can kind of go there now. You guys have had a, a legendary marriage by entertainment standards sure. in that it has lasted, yeah. and one of the caveats of that is that. You live on one coast, and she lives on another.
1: But the first... We've been married 35 years this January, and we've been together for 39. The first 30 years, we were basically together um, 24-7 when she would go off during the summer from Who's the Boss and do a movie in Statesville, North Carolina, or Canada, and I wasn't working, which wasn't easy for me. Uh, I would take myself and be with her for the month, and I was painting at the time, so the production companies were really great. They set up an, an office for me to paint, and I had all my, you know, the materials sent there. So, basically, we were together the whole time, only since Ugly Betty... Gotcha. Uh, ...that was shooting in New York. I mean, I think they shot the pilot in New York, and then they decided to shoot the rest here, and then New York City and New York State gave huge tax... Uh, um, Ben benefits, so they decided to move ugly Betty back to New York and Judith realized that she really loves a city mm-hmm. and I really love LA. Mm-hmm. Um, so we commute a lot now.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, you yeah. make it work. It's amazing. I'm, and I'm not uncovering or excavating anything inappropriate. It was no, no. about, she mentioned it no, in an totally. article. She
1: had a whole article about yeah, that. And,
0: yeah. In reading it, I always wonder how people make relationships work, whether you're not, you're in show business. And I think it's a cool sort of trust and dynamic understanding that you guys have. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to see it. Yeah, and you know, and, and we and talk about everything. You talk about everything. Yeah. It seems like you guys are companions on, on multiple levels, totally, friendships. Totally. And, and uh, it's not exactly an awful thing to have to spend some time in New York and for her to have to spend some time in L.A. No,
1: I, I think I get the better of the deal because I love New York. Yeah, who doesn't? Um, and if I had to live there, I could and would. Yeah. I don't know that Judith feels exactly the same about having to live full-time in L.A.
0: No, I see that. I see it having lived both places as well. There's something about New York that's just different.
1: I don't like competing with the energy of New York. That's an
0: interesting statement. Totally.
1: I mean, that's been my experience. Uh, L.A. is, in a, a fabulous way, tofu. It is what you create it to be. In New York, you are constantly bombarded with an exciting energy the minute you walk out the door, and it creates a, a another series of challenges to kind of uh, 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 deal with. Pressure. Um, because it's so exciting, you want to, you know, and usually the places in New York, we rent a small apartment, are small, and you kind of want to get out of them more often than not. We have a lovely place here, and it's it has space, so uh, it's luxurious and, and i mean I, I i write in our new york apartment and all i need is a you know like a small table as you know you don't need much at all a mm-hmm. paper pencil or computer um but uh, the city is uh, it's got a an energy that is the top note in la i think uh, the more creative one is the happier one is in la that's my experience um
0: i i agree with that statement that's a wonderful statement. Yeah. And New York can also be the most amazing place in the world but if things aren't going well it can be the most isolating and lonely place in totally. the world. Totally. And that's I, yeah. th- that's something that people some people can't reconcile.
1: And I did both. I mean, I was an actor in New York for years yeah. and you know, I started out after school in New Jersey. Boston, and then back to New York. And um, uh, it is, it can be lonely, if, especially if, you know, you're pursuing a career in acting, a theater, whatever, and, and, and it's not working out the way you thought it would. It's, I mean, there are, it, it, the good thing about actors is there, there is generally a, a, a family that's created outside and within a show. So that does help. But it is a very isolating experience. And New York is an isolating, can be an isolating town.
0: How did The Sopranos come about
1: well, uh, like everyone else of a certain age, I read for Tony Soprano. Uh, I went in and I hadn't seen David in all those years since Moonlight. Uh, went to the Brillstein Grey, is what the, what it was called back then, uh, offices off of, uh, uh, whatever, in town here. And, um, it was nice to see David again and, uh, read for Tony. Um, didn't get it, of course, and never heard anything again year or so later, I got a call from my agent saying, David is considering using you as Tony's father in flashbacks. That never went anywhere. And then, um, maybe a year or two later, I mean, after that, um, I got a call to play Jack. Um, and, um, they flew me in for the table reads. And, you know, they really treated the actors well, you know. Um, and I think Jack was in the third season. Two, I did three seasons.
0: Three episodes. Yeah, yeah. And my notes had seasons two and five.
1: Okay, there was a sh- I did, there wasn't much and I think, three. Yeah. Five was the big one. When I yeah. got the call, they Rat said, pack. you're going to be excited. You know, this is a big, big, big episode for you but you get whacked and i said that's okay that's sort of an honor to get whacked
0: Mm -hmm. especially at that point on the show were you watching it
1: i i wasn't really a fan Um, um last year i actually sat down and binge watched the whole thing and it's it's an amazing show i didn't i watched a few episodes when it was on the air um I don't know why. I mean, the family, I guess, it was just hard to experience this kind of family, and it wasn't my sort of thing.
0: Was it too personal? No, no, it had no
1: no connection. I mean, no. I mean, (laughs) the truth is, my family growing up was a benign version of the Sopranos. Take all the violence out, um... And you'll stay with the arguments and the energy between kids and parents and stuff. And that was sort of my family, but it didn't have any of the violence. Um, I don't know why. I really don't know why. I just wasn't attracted or connected to the show back then t- to watch it. But uh, as I said, about a year, year and a half ago, I just sat down and binged the whole, f- was it, six, seven
0: seasons? Six, se- six yeah. A, six B. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why uh, a few years ago? What was the catalyst? I don't know what it was. Was your wife a fan of it?
1: No, she doesn't watch a lot of TV. She doesn't like anything that has any sort of violence in it. Um, she loves animals, and she doesn't. No, she doesn't watch. She doesn't watch her own stuff, which is not violent. And no, I mean, whenever I want to see something and say, "Let's go see this," she says, "No, I don't want to go watch something. like Joker or something." She would never go see, or even something less violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, she, she she's she's a theater person. She sees everything on Broadway and off Broadway, and I watch. A lot of TV, but I'm surprised when nominations and stuff come out. How many of those shows I have no idea what they are, and I thought I watched a lot, but there's there's tons of material
0: out there. we were talking about it off mic. It's a fire hose of content, and it's yeah. it's hard to keep up. So you appeared in three episodes. Rat Pack was the is sort of the the one that I want to get into the most. Sure. But what can you tell me about that experience? Moments. And I'm asking you to go down memory lane. It sure. was a long time ago, but. Moments, interactions, events that you can recall that come to mind today in 2020?
1: Well, the first thing is that Steve Sharippa and I shared a honey wagon. So we were like, I walked into the honey wagon the first day and there's this guy sitting there. It's like, you know, and I had starred in, you know, some pilots and movies for TV. and It was like, uh, what are you doing here? I thought this was my room. Um, so that was my connection to Steve. Um, and it, it was fine. It was fine. Um, the first episode we shot well, that I was in was shot at the Paramus parking the Paramus Mall parking lot if I believe is that right? You're walking with Tony uh, I'm walking with Tony the, I forgot who directed it um, it was one of the big two or three mm. and uh, the, the, the only note he said to me is tone the accent down you're not a gavone so I was coming on like this really you know Tony you got these guys you know these moulignons or whatever doing this and that and the other thing he said just that's the way they talk. Just tone it down a bit. You're a business guy. I was a business guy, but I'm still from New Jersey, yeah. you know, the East Coast sort of feel. Um, so that was, and that was, I think that was the only scene in that episode. Uh, the next episode, you know, there was the big um, strike at my construction site. I don't think I had any lines at all. And um, the, the the Rat Pack, the, the big connection for me, if I'm remembering correctly, it was Matt Weiner's first episode. Yes. I'm glad I remembered that then. Yeah. Um, and he was on the set, and we had a nice connection. He was telling me about this pilot that he wrote that he'd trying to get made, and nobody wanted to buy it. It was about these advertising guys in the 60s and 50s, and, um, and he, he forced his agent to send that pilot script to David Chase. And that's what David hired him off of for The Sopranos. And the first episode that uh, Matt wrote was the one that I... I think it was Rat Pack. Um, He said to me... He said, I wrote a lovely scene for you and your wife. I never had a wife in the show. Um he said but they cut it. He said I it was I was really I really wanted you to do that scene with your wife and you know kind of confessing to her that you're working for the FBI and you're terrified. He said I thought that would be nice to be able to see, you know, Jack's experience uh where he can kind of talk to somebody who he trusts to say, "Oh my god, I'm I'm going to I'm with Tony and I'm a snitch." Um so we had a really nice connection and it, it lasts to this day. And uh, David Helped him, to, he tried to help him get it sold, Madman, to HBO, and there were no takers. And that's when he went to yes, AMC. Crazy story. Uh, totally. You know, he said David was like, he's down. I mean, we're trying to sell this, and um, David's in the room with me. It's David Chase. And they're still not buying it. So,
0: ah. <laughs> and now look what happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: yeah, now yeah. In, my, in my estimation, it's the second greatest series yeah, totally. of all time. Yeah. Um, And he's
1: written a novel. He had a novel that came out about a year and a half ago, Heather the Totality. Um, So, you know, we sort of, you know, kind of connected on that level as writers.
0: That episode, actually, Rat Pack, knowing what I know now about how he had the pilot of Mad Men in his drawer, the style of that episode is very Mad Men-y. The kind of interlude scenes between major scenes, the lighting, obviously scripts aren't very camera- procedure heavy mm-hmm. but that's that episode could basically be an episode in mad men is my point oh that's interesting stylistically
1: tonally well you're very perceptive about these things so i uh, i didn't get get that but when you kind of when you pointed out it's like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense
0: the first question that i asked myself when i re-watched it, i just recorded the episode the deep dive discussion for that episode and the first question i asked myself was was the Mad Men pilot done when this episode aired? Yeah, no. And the answer was, yes, it was. He had the Mad Men pilot. Oh, you mean written. Yeah, written. Yes, it was yeah. written. The Mad Men pilot was written, so he had his voice articulated on paper, mm-hmm. and then this Rat Pack episode was one of his ways to kind of get his voice out, and he did. And you see the... Yeah. You, I see the, the connective tissue everywhere.
1: And he was... He wrote uh, on comedy shows before then. I think this was the first hour series...
0: Mm-hmm. Your character was a huge part of the story in the Rat Pack episode, mm-hmm. and it culminates with your character, Jack, in the trunk of a car. Mm-hmm. Any memories from shooting that episode, that scene?
1: Uh, being a dead body? No, the challenge was to keep the eyes open and to create an experience of no life. I mean, which isn't easy. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you do that. You just do that. Uh, and they had the the, what, the golf Five club thing, thing shoved in my mouth. No, and I'm crouched in the thing when the two uh, FBI guys are looking in at me, and then, you know, there's a shot of me, and then I think the next scene is Tony throwing the Rat Pack uh, collage out into the water. Into the I never knew what happened with that. Did you really... Is that, like, disposable?
0: <laughs> well, it, it bothered me that he is so smart. He's always playing three, four, five steps ahead on the chessboard than everybody else around him. Uh-huh. Once he suspected your character, he didn't examine the painting to see if there was a de- wiring device on it. Interesting. He looks at it and he frames it and he's kind of standing around figuring out where he wants it to go. But he never flipped it over and like, looked to see if there was anything in there. Because, you know, the, okay. Jack was wearing the hat and yeah, the hat yeah, was yeah. what was mic'd. Yeah, totally. That was sort of a thing that I always yeah. wondered why, but yeah. maybe that was by design.
1: It w- was fun doing that scene with Tony in the little uh, diner. Cafe, yeah. whatever that was. Very
0: cinematic. Yeah, very was, beautiful. really nice. Two guys in a yeah. room. And I, I've talked about that a lot with Tony Soprano. Anybody who he's with... Uh, and in that episode in particular, there's two conversations. He has one with Jack Mazzarone, and he has one with Tony B. In a diner later in the episode. huh And the way they lit the diners, the way that they... They, you know, the cross-section of the two guys in the seat. Yeah. Um, the way The Sopranos did it in particular, it, it has been done in television, it has been done in film since time immemorial. But there's something so beautiful about the way The Sopranos framed it and presented it, and obviously the dialoguing. You can watch the two of you guys talking for 30 minutes.
1: Mm. Oh, that's, that, the, the way, that's nice to hear. The, the, the,
0: just, just the way that the hand gesture of him saying, you're going to order something. Mm-hmm. It was just it was very thoughtful. Yes. It wasn't television. Say it over and over again. It's very so, cliché. Sure. It was something different. It's HBO. <laughs> Did being on the show influence your life or career in any way? Did it have any positive or negative impacts?
1: Nothing that I was uh, aware of. Okay. Nothing directly. I think, you know, it, it, it was part of my evolution realizing that... I don't know that I want to be an actor. I didn't...
0: That is actually a profound statement. Yeah, well, okay.
1: I, I don't know. It wasn't... It didn't directly happen there, but it was an ongoing thing when I realized I I didn't really like being on sets. I didn't like hanging out. And my actors love and thrive on being in that camaraderie on a set. And I would always go back to the trailer and do, you know, some kind of writing. Uh, um. So I was a very um, introverted in that way, solitary... Um, and, you know, and then as it evolved, I realized, oh my God, I think my personality is really meant to be a writer. And that's sort of the, kind of the evol- The segue. Yeah, the segue evolution from those early days of acting, thinking, you know, I grew up, I think I wanted to be an actor. I love being, you know, the idea, ooh, I could be a movie star, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. And that wasn't happening. And, you know, I had a, I had a great career. I mean, I was playing a lot of, you know, really- Relatively thankless, but large roles in movies of the week. I played the husband or the lover. I played opposite two of the three or four Charlie's Angels. Um, um, and I made, I made good money, but it, was, it wasn't really um, that satisfying. That and, makes sense. And then um, about 12 years ago, I got, uh, I got a call from South Coast Rep to do a play written by David Weiner. Who is now a huge writer? He just did, I think, uh, George Orwell's. It was in 1984. He was in London, exec producing the series, um, and he was on a bunch of other shows. He did the uh, The Walking Dead sequel. What's it called? The Living.
0: Uh, I don't know the name. Something The
1: Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, he wrote this amazing play, three character play. Um I read this script and I said, "Oh my god. This was after I didn't want to be an actor. I read this and I said, "Oh, this is why I became an actor." It was like a David Mamet play. The minute you step on the stage and you don't get off for 2 hours. It was the I was the engine of the show. But I wasn't retaining the lines like I had remembered retaining them and I was totally panicked. It worked out fine, but that sort of kind of was the next uh thought of, "You know what? I don't I don't need to put myself through this." Uh, the only two hours of the day for those two months that I had any piece was on stage. Um, it's like, okay, I'm I, good, I did that. I, I I realized this is an amazing part. It's a part I've always wanted to play like this. And uh, okay,
0: I'm done. And you became a writer, which I'm going to ask you about in just a moment. To close the book on Sopranos, mm-hmm. I'm going to say a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind to you today. Uh, James Gandolfini. Awesome.
1: Powerful. uh, Larger than life.
0: David Chase.
1: Mysterious.
0: Why do you think people are still connected to the show?
1: Well, it worked on a lot of levels. I mean, it was a family drama. It was a comedy in a lot of ways. It had a huge, violent thread through it. It was extraordinarily well-written. That holds up today, and I'm sure it'll hold up decades from now. Um, The cast was... uh, organic
0: um, accidental
1: well they always are generally especially when you get a group of unknowns there was no big star james had done a bunch of films and but nobody was a big star or or even close to that kind of a star the show made them that um, i just the it was an authentic and organic and really 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 well made
0: you became, as we've kind of been leading the trail down this road. You became a writer. What was your moment where you were like, "This is me. I got this"?
1: Well, it started out. Um, Judith, my wife, and I were very involved in the AIDS crisis uh, in the '80s. And um, any particular reason? A lot of friends were dying. We had a huge amount of friends. We were going to funerals and uh, participating in you know wakes for you know almost every week. Uh, it was devastating. It was devastating. The government wasn't doing anything. Uh, you know reagan wouldn't even say the word and it was just a devastating paul manette who passed away from aids is an amazing and deep friend of ours he's written some am- amazing pieces of work i mean if you you should check out his stuff poetry uh he wrote tv shows but he a an novelist and poetry is where he really uh, it, his, his stuff sang um So uh, I was driving in the car with the two guys who were working with Judith and I at the time, and and we were all talking about it, and I said, hmm, I wonder what would happen if the President of the United States had AIDS. And you could feel the energy in the car go, "Ah!" or some version of that. Um, And I thought, oh, this is a great idea for a film. I'm going to give it to somebody. And then after a couple of weeks, I said, well, I'm going to try and write this. I'd never written anything. Um, And then a few days after that, I'm in my car somewhere in Beverly Hills. A bus passes by with a big black and white poster along the side that said if the president had AIDS, he'd need more than just your vote. I was like, wait a minute, is that like real? A couple of days later, same circumstance, different bus, different location, passes by, black and white little sign that says if the Pope had AIDS, he'd need more than just your prayers. It was an ad campaign for Amphar. And I, that really solidified the fact that I'm going to try and write this. Um, I had an option that never went anywhere. Um, but it was, it was my foray into writing scripts. Um, and I've done a couple other things since then. Judas and I are developing projects. Uh, we're, uh, so I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually developing a project called Forget About It. It's about me as an actor at 30 growing up in the Bronx and what that was like. And it's about forgiveness, and it's about learning secrets that I didn't know. And s- most of it is uh, authentic. Some of the stuff is a little more dramatized. Um, but that, that's that been a wonderful experience for me to go through uh, reconnecting with my past. Because, I mean... When I left living in the Bronx, I kind of left all that behind. I left the accent, I left every kind of connection and wanted to, you know, start a life that was different from that. And this, 30 years, 40 years later, is an opportunity for me to revisit. Um, My mother died when I was two years and nine months old, so her spirit is an important part of the story. She raised you. Uh, Well, my father and a friend of the family's grandmother... And then my father remarried 14 months later because he wanted to have a mother for me. And an interesting, uh, deeply uh, um, moving part of that is he kept a diary for every day of my life for the first five years of it. Um, a couple of sentences. I call it the early tweets it was a, a diary that every page had the same day in subsequent years. so You could see what happened on January 1st, uh, 1952, 53, 54, 55, and then turn the page. Um, and the first thing I did, because I would ask him, What's, what was mom like? Because I had no memory of my biological mother. Um, he would always say, she's a lot like your mom now. Uh, finally, I guess I was in first, second year of college, he gave me the diary. He said, here, I wrote this for you. And he wrote it in my voice. So I I look at it as that was the beginning of my life as a writer. Because everything was, I did this today, I did that today. And when I first got it, I went to the first, I went to the three-month period where my mother was sick and dying and died. Uh, to be able to know what that experience was like, and it was—it's a, a profound. It's on my desk to this day. Mm. Um, so that sort of opened up the door for me to look at doing a show about going home and forgiveness and secrets. And my family's very quirky. It is the Sopranos without the bullets. Um, and you know, so uh, hopefully that'll that'll get made. You know, it's just Hollywood, so things take however long, and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't happen.
0: Yeah. But your motivation is pure and authentic. Yeah, right? and it's... Uh, it's what it's, wants it's, to happen it, will happen.
1: It's very therapeutic for me as well. I mean, bottom line, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm connecting with my past in a way I never had.
0: Are you an only child?
1: Uh, well, I was an only child from that marriage. Mm-hmm. My, my stepmom, uh, I have two half-brothers. Half-siblings? Yeah.
0: How did acting inform your writing?
1: Oh, I, I, I can't point to anything specific, but I, I read tons of scripts. I think I know what works. Um, I think my strong suit is dialogue because I know, I know what it feels like. And I I know how, you know, I know what works in the mouth. And, um, so I, I think it informs, I informs, informs it all. Uh, Writing a novel is sort of a different experience because you're everything. You're the director, cinematographer, costume designer, you know, wardrobe, you know, you're, you're everybody, um,
0: Without being cliche, it's a question every writer gets asked, which do you prefer? But what are the attributes of uh, writing a novel um, versus writing a screenplay that you prefer? Or
1: The way I look at it is writing a screenplay is like running a ma- marathon. Writing a novel is like a triathlon.
0: All the parts of your body.
1: It's it's huge. You know, with a script, if it's 110, 20 pages, you know, you can go back, and there's a lot of white space on the script. So you can relatively, if you got to go back to page one to kind of see what's going on, to pick up the energy in order to continue where you left off. It's one thing, but to write 300 some odd pages of a novel and then go back to page one and try and remember, did I say this on page 75? I know it's really important to say this on page 20 or 200, sorry. Um, uh, that I, you know, and so that is, uh, it's a massive undertaking.
0: Does Judith edit your stuff? Do you guys have that kind of a relationship?
1: Mm, she doesn't edit. She'll, okay. she'll read it when I'm, uh, when I'm pretty close to, you know, wanting to get it out there. No. Um, she, but she does with the stuff we're developing. We have a few projects we're developing. She is right in there as a producer and editor. And we're like, you know, I'm running things by her. And, you know, we get into our little arguments about things. Naturally. And she says, do you want to listen to this or not? And I, you know, I calm down and then we go ahead. She's a real good uh, partner as a producer.
0: I've got to ask, yeah, because sure. I was a huge Who's the Boss <laughs> fan totally. growing up. Um, but probably would even, if you give me a list of shows to do a podcast about after The Sopranos, it would probably be on it. Wow. Um, you're, of course, married to Judith Light, who played Angela Bauer on the show. How come we don't see that show streaming anywhere or hear about reboots everything else has found a second life it seems Mm -hmm. any insight on why that one hasn't found traction
1: well Catherine has passed away right Catherine hellman um mona mona and um it it had been broached a few times throughout the past number of years and uh, nobody people various people weren't in the right place to do it or they were off doing something else um I think it's just had its time. I mean, I'm I'm not particularly fond of people, you know, going back and rebooting stuff. Um, I'm with
0: you. I'm just curious. It's one. It's one that would be so much better than some of the other ones that are mm, out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of the reason why it's the concept it's not was fantastic.
1: Yeah. You know, I love that. Just turn the genre roles around. Yeah. Um, I, I I I I don't know. I mean, I don't think it'll ever happen now that. Catherine is gone, but um, you know, in Lissa's old Danny, uh, older, not old. Sorry, um, <laughs> she's got a family. Danny is off doing another line of work, and what uh, does he do now? I think he's actually. I don't. I don't know if it's still current. He was into uh, some kind of forestry, dealing with bonsai trees and plants, and, and he was a. I think he studied to be a veterinarian. I don't know if he went further in that world. Um, so everybody's kind of off in their own thing now. And Tony's, you know, wanting, he loves Frank Sinatra and he loves being the showman. And I mean, he's an amazing tap dancer. He, he would tap dance on the show, uh, you know, during the the warm ups and, you know, during the breaks when they were resetting lights and stuff. He would tap dance and talk to the audience. And, oh, he's an amazing, they're all, they're all amazing. He was an amazing guy, still is. And they're all a wonderful family.
0: Were you guys together during yeah, the show, Yeah, the show? yeah, yeah. Okay. I
1: was at... You
0: predate Who's the Boss? Totally. Okay.
1: I was at the screen test when Judith... There were a bunch of women auditioning, doing a screen test for Angela. And Judith... I was there in the little audience area. Judith and Tony were doing their thing. At one point, Judith turns away, instinctually turns back and catches Tony looking at her ass. And she gives him a look, and I caught it on camera. And you could say, okay, that that... Boom. They got that... That magic happened there, and they all saw it. Um, so I was, I, I was there at the creation of their relating. I love that.
0: That's really, that's really great. Where was the show filmed?
1: Originally, it was at Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. Then they moved to Paramount. It was on eight, nine years, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, it was long. It was a huge hit around the world. Right. France, it was huge. It was called Madame et um, and they, uh, they dubbed it in French. And it, I, German, I think it was in almost every country. Um, I, the reruns, it's hard. We couldn't, the only DVDs we could get was se- season one. Um, yeah. there, because we, we, we've been looking and nothing else is available past that first season.
0: You can't find it on Amazon Prime. Even no, Dubai. it's not streaming. You can't, it's not it on no. you can't find it on Netflix. You can't find it. It's never on. It was, uh, I don't know what the company was
1: back then, but it you know, I guess it's, you know, whatever. It's who a had rights thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it's, a, it's an opportunity lost because there's so much crap that's being streamed <laughs> right <laughs> I'll, now. I'll let Judith know. <laughs> that's one of the good shows. I mean, it's one yeah, of, it look, was. It was a great show. It was, it was, a very, it was a, it's something that I would watch. And, and I can't tell you how many, or
1: I can. I can and will tell you how many people have come up to Judith and me to tell us how important it was for them when they came to America for the first time. It helped them learn English. Hmm. So, uh, so many people... Learned how to speak English as their second language from watching Who's the Boss.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Well, thanks for going there. Yeah, um, yeah. I get to tie. I get <laughs> to tie too. Who's the Boss into <laughs> <a> Sopranos <laughs> podcast, but there's connective tissue. It's
1: like uh, what was Tony's uh, famous saying on the show? A O. Hey, thank you. Oh, way. Hey, a o. Bada bing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I always connected back to Rocky, because if you've listened to the podcast, you probably know how much I love Rocky, too. Sure. But, hey, yo, Adrian, yeah, yeah. that was, uh, there was a, a little bit of Tony Danza on little Sylvester Stallone <laughs> going on, because they were both peaking right around yeah. the same time. Yeah. Um, I finish every interview with a lightning round. Last good book you read?
1: <laughs> it's funny. I write fiction, but I love nonfiction. Um, it was a it was a memoir. I know the cover of the book is like a nightgown, a young girl's nightgown. Inheritance? No, not in, can't No, I can't okay. recall it.
0: Do you read uh, physical books or do you read on, on electronic devices?
1: You know what? I'm really bad as a reader. I, I have a ton of physical books and a ton on my computer. And I read books just for style. I, I don't really finish books. What does that mean? I, I um For style just to see how an author puts words down on a page, see how they communicate, uh, and experience. Um, I steal a lot of shit and it becomes mine. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, that's, I don't, I'm, I don't think it's a drawback, although they say every good writer is a good reader. Um, I was never really a good reader in terms of like reading a lot. Um, but I have books all around me and I open them up and, you know, kind of, open up to a couple of pages and read them just to be inspired by um, how they communicate and experience. Um, But uh, I thought you were going to ask me that, and I I couldn't remember the last book I read, although um, this was the one that I recall the most.
0: Are you a bookstore browser person? I haven't been. Okay. Favorite music right now?
1: I write to soundtracks pretty much all the time. Uh, Right now I'm in love with Thomas Newman's 1917 soundtrack. Uh, I have a huge collection of soundtracks. Some I'm,
0: orchestral music.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, all all different kinds of shows. Some movies I have never seen, never heard of, but I come across a soundtrack and it's like perfect for a sequence I'm writing. Um, so I dip into that regularly. Springsteen. I'm a huge fan of Springsteen. I was at the first preview of his Broadway show, and then went back with Judith to say, "You got to, you got to come see this." Um, and uh, I love his stuff, and I love uh, um, uh, Western Skies, the album, and, and the Netflix piece, the film.
0: Have you looked at Springsteen's book? He wrote. Yeah, a oh, I memoir? listened to it listened I, actually. To it? That may
1: have been the next to last book I read.
0: Did he narrate
1: it? Yeah, he did. Oh, oh, it's awesome! Best. It's those totally best. awesome.
0: I read it, and I would listen to it again in his voice. So much better.
1: It, it is, it is.
0: Uh, what TV shows and films have you enjoyed recently? Like, what do you watch? What have you liked?
1: Well, you know, I, I love The Crown, and I love the fact that they have these characters for two years, and then they move ahead that decade or so. Um, I saw this uh, series on Netflix, Messiah, Messiah. Um, cause I, uh, I watched it all. I uh, mean, you know, the stuff I write has a metaphysical component to it. And I, I you know, I think my talent as a writer is I ground that uh, metaphysical experience in, in a, a reality. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I thought it was, you know, I thought they had some things to say. Um, succession is totally amazing. Yeah. Um, Uh, I loved Manhunter when it was on and now they released everybody from their contract so who knows if there are going to be a season three. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot. I mean, I can't even remember. Mindhunter. What did I say? You said Manhunter. Oh, sorry. Well, that's because Judith's in a new series for Spectrum TV called Manhunter. Okay. Which is the Richard Jewell story that Clint Eastwood did as a feature. Oh, wow. Judith plays the Kathy Bates character in the ten-part
0: series. Oh, nice. Nice. And
1: Cameron Britton who was in the first season of Manhunter who played, uh, the really weird serial killer, um, who ate pizza and talked about killing his grandparents. Uh, I forgot his, he's an amazing actor. He plays Richard Jewell in the limited series. Small world. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. I mean, there, there's a lot, like I said, I watch a lot of TV. Um, I watch tennis, too. I love tennis. So are you I watching
0: mean, the Australian yeah, Open?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it's dev- devastating with all the wildfires there. But, uh, yeah, it starts today, actually.
0: Uh, are you a Federer fan?
1: I'm, I'm an everybody fan. Okay. I mean, I love new guys who so I don't know anything Medvedev. about. I think he's amazing. That, that five set, the final at the U.S. Open. I get to go to the U.S. Open, you know, uh, every year. Judith gets me into the president's box. So, you know, because of her celebrity, it's just a, it's a real cool experience. Totally, totally big perk.
0: My wife and I bonded. Uh, When we dated, we, she was a grad student in New York and we would go to the tournament every Labor Day weekend. Yeah. I went like, I think four consecutive years and I got to see Roger play before he was, he had just won Wimbledon. So he only had one Grand Slam. And I, uh, I would see him play a couple of times. He beat Sampras at that point? Uh, he had already beaten Sampras, okay. but he hadn't won. He didn't win that year that he beat Sampras. Um, but yeah, I love the U.S. Open.
1: Uh, the, the, the final weekend ends on my birthday. My oh, birthday's nice. the 9th. So it's sort of like, that's it's like a, a birthday tradition. gift to me. Totally. The quarterfinals or semis. And I play three times a week. A special which place. is another oh, reason you. I love L.A. Yeah.
0: You can't play tennis in. I mean, no, uh, the you, city. you
1: can. I mean, I, when I go to New York now, finally, after years of Judith saying there are a lot of courts, so yeah. I finally bought equipment and have my own life there as a tennis player.
0: Yeah, wonderful.
1: Um, you good? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I play with guys. You know, uh, I could be their Younger father. Guys. I mean, but I, but it, <laughs> Yeah, I mean. So much so, I started working with a trainer twice a week, and we specifically gear the the workouts to the tennis. That's awesome. Um, and my stamina, you know, is extraordinary. I mean, from my age and playing these guys, we play two, three hours sometimes. I, I, I prefer singles, but I'm trying to get better at the net and I don't particularly go to the net in singles that much. In doubles, I'm forced to, so I'm trying to get more doubles in just to learn, you know, the strategies at, at the net and, and, and those angles.
0: Have you read Agus? Do you play? I played. I haven't played in a long time. I have two small children, but my son, my 6-year-old, I do take him to the courts, and I'm sort of his coach right okay, now. Okay, okay. He likes it. Oh, good. I want to get him good enough so that I can get him a real teacher. You did it from a appreciation and sort of like an exercise yes. mindset. Yeah. I started playing when I was young, mm. and so I developed a hate for the game okay. because I wasn't good enough. Okay. I couldn't beat people. Sure, okay. And so then I was like, ah. Uh, I but understand. I watched Did you read Agassi's I did. It's amazing. It's one of the best books ever. It's amazing. One of the best books ever. The
1: other good book is uh, the Federer and Nadal uh, Wimbledon match play by play yeah that's an i forgot it's called uh, um i forgot the title of that uh, but so that's an amazing I know exactly what that's an amazing about, book i mean the guy just goes through the whole match point by point deep dives it totally. and then
0: also um david foster wallace yes he wrote a book um on tennis it was basically a series of essays yes and um you know the way he articulates roger federer's totally. game is like a religious experience it is it is a religious i mean he's experience. an amazing
1: he's 38 now and he yeah. still plays like a gazelle yeah you know, and he's still in there. He's well, he's he's ranked three now.
0: Yeah, he's ranked yeah. three. He's all. Yeah. I mean, like it's twenty twenty, and we're still talking about Roger. totally.
1: And you know, and those guys, those three four guys, have a, a lock on it. everything, these young kids, somebody's going to break through. Medvedev, I think maybe, and Dominic Team, there are mm-hmm. all these guys, and um, uh, Tsitsipas. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a lot of these young guys that are just hungry to just knock these guys but off But they're, the mag- they're, they're not. They haven't you know? been, no. They still
0: got to go through Djokovic. Djokovic has got an, at least another six, seven years of like... He does. ...of suppressing them.
1: And there was, an, I think, an op-ed piece in the New York Times this week, that uh, last week, that talked about, uh, uh, you know, if Federer may very well be passed by Nadal and Djokovic. He thought, you know, winning 20 Grand Slams, would, that would last forever, and Nadal is one away. And Djokovic is, what, three away.
0: Yeah. He said it, actually. Uh, John McEnroe, he was on a panel... Uh, a couple of days ago. And I think Roger has already addressed it. And he said, I fully expect them, to, sure. one of them to pass me. Yeah. Not a question of if, it's a question of when. I think that, yeah. And out of the three of them, by a long shot, he is the most beautiful to watch. Yes. He's the most elegant. He's an artist. And a doll I've grown to love. It's a physical, it's, it's a take it or leave it sort of style. Sure. Yeah. But there's something about Federer when you watch him. It's like a, it's a professional at the apex of their craft. Totally.
1: Nadal is my hero because I'm a southpaw, too. Okay. So I kind of model my name on the, on the grunting, you know, that yeah. forceful kind of play.
0: Do you have a Babolat racket?
1: I do. Awesome. I have two Babolat rackets and a Babolat
0: bag and a Babolat. racket. So you got, all the, up, so totally. you got
1: well, all the swag. Totally. Well, no, it wasn't swag. I had to buy it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if you hosted a podcast, what would you want it to be about?
1: Very interesting. Um, we're trying to sell the audio rights to this novel I've written. Which is uh, called? It's called The Occurrence. Okay. It comes out February 25th. 2020 is the year we're talking about now. Um, and someone mentioned to me, have you ever thought of doing a podcast about the book? Uh, and I didn't, I'm not sure what that would mean because um, they said you could have more control over it. Um, so I, 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 um, I don't know. I mean, it's so daunting to think about what you do. I mean, I've listened to your show ever since you called me. I didn't know this existed. Then you called me to come on the show, and I've been listening to a dozen of your interviews so far, and it's amazing, and, and the breadth and wealth and the depth to which you go with these people is extraordinary. Um, it's like a novel. I mean, uh, and you're, I've told Judith, I said, you're, you're, you know more about this show than anybody in it. Uh, you probably know more av- and observe more even than David Chase. I would not be surprised. Uh, well, you shake your head. But i you are, you're, you're, a deep dive doesn't really kind of communicate your experience of The Sopranos in my experience listening to you. Um, so I don't know what a podcast would be. I, I wouldn't know that, I, I don't know that I have a lot to say other than what I would would write. So I, the answer is I don't know.
0: Okay. What a podcast is to someone like a publisher is a way to keep the conversation about your book going while the reader is reading your book and after the reader is reading your book, or perhaps, and this is kind of like a businessy thing, but to get someone to be interested in reading your book, having these conversations between characters or these scenes or these vignettes within your book being sort of a gateway drug to say, hey, I like this story. I want to see how it plays out. I had been
1: writing a second novel and I was 200 pages into it. And it's like, it's interesting, but it's not the deep dive into characters that I I really want. It works on a couple of levels, but I needed to work on multiple levels. And I finally came to the realization that while this current book, The Occurrence, is uh, in and of itself a complete experience. I still need and want to know what's happening to these characters. Mm-hmm. So th- a week ago, I started to write, I guess, the part two.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you the best
1: in your you. book. Thank, Thank you so much for taking the time oh, it's to do been, this. Oh, it's been an honor. You're, you're you're Like I said before, you're like a star to me. It's amazing.
0: You're too kind. No, I'm serious. Um, this project, as you can tell, means a lot to me. I, yeah, I know. Uh, it comes from, well, it's all been all heart, and, and it's been special to be able to sit down and talk to everybody that's been a part of it. You're immortalized on this show mm-hmm. as one of the characters who got whacked, as you mentioned. Totally. And
1: Vanity Fair did a centerfold years ago with all the guys, and did they whack any women on? Oh, yeah, of course. Lorraine Clues, Yeah, so? yeah. Yeah. Um, it was really cool when I got the call. Yeah, we want you to be in this big Vanity Fair spread of all the people who got whacked. Where else? You,
0: where else are you going to get that? You know, I, I don't in, know. Was it in an Annie Leibovitz shot?
1: Uh, I don't think so. That would have been. I, I would have special. recognized yeah. the name if she, she were there.
0: Well, again, Robert, yeah. thank you so much.
1: My pleasure.